So on Friday, uh, you may have received an email from Pastor Robert and Lisa, uh, our uh, lead pastors. Um, in the midst of tragedy and pain, they shared with us and the team that they lost their 17-year-old son, Aiden. Um, and they're just navigating the pain of loss. Uh, I don't think any parent should ever have to go through that pain. And even in the midst of them going through it, I think about maybe some of us in the room today that maybe knew Aiden, or you've had a chance to be at the table with them. Um, and you know their other son, Corbin, who's also walking through the pain of loss. Maybe you're carrying heaviness from a different experience. And you're saying, God, what would God have for us? I believe that he speaks to us in moments like these. I believe that uh, Pastor Robert and Pastor Lisa and, and Corbin are going through this pain and this loss, and they know that there's a church that's with them and behind them. And maybe you're watching online and you're experiencing pain and loss yourself. I believe God speaks in these moments, just like he did in the book of Psalms, chapter 34. And if you have your Bibles, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to ask you to underline and highlight something that I think is so powerful to me. Psalm 34, verse 17 the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. In any cry that you have ever had, the Lord hears you. The Walks family is watching online right now as you're crying, as you're mourning, as you're questioning, in the midst of pain, loss, and confusion, Jesus hears you, and he responds. Scripture goes on in verse 17, he delivers them from all of their troubles, this is the verse, if you have your Bibles, verse 18 or your devices, Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. That's who he's close to. If you're walking in pain, walking in a season of hurt, walking in a season of loss, or maybe like many of us are just feeling so heavy, hearing a loss so close to home, God is close to the brokenhearted. He's close to you. He's close to us right now. And the scripture goes on. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have troubles, but the Lord delivers them from all. This is what he wants to do. In moments like these, in painful moments, tragedy, moments of tragedy, moments of loss. Maybe you're mourning the loss of someone in your family. Maybe you're mourning loss of a job. Maybe you're mourning loss of friends. Maybe you're just mourning loss of purpose. You're watching online and the pain you're experiencing, there's no words you could ever put to it. Just cry out to the Lord because he hears you and he responds. Now what can we do for our lead pastors and Corbin in this time for that family? Pray. If you haven't been praying for them, I wanna encourage you to pray. It's not easy. Even just speaking with them throughout these past few days on the phone, hearing in their voices, just the, the loss and the grieving. I would never wish it on anybody. But I can pray for them. I can partner with them. I can lift up their arms as, as Aaron and her lifted up Moses' arms as they were in the battle. Maybe it's a moment for us to pray like we've never prayed before. Maybe in moments of grief, in moments of loss, God says, would you surrender to me? Before you do anything else, would you surrender to me? And just a, a piece of advice for those of us that may be hearing this news for the first time, or maybe you heard it for the first time uh, the day the email went out, if I can just encourage all of us 
This is a time for prayer and encouragement, not a time for questions. I know so many may have questions and in this and that. Um, the best help we can give is prayer. Prayer. I can tell you right now that that family has more questions than anyone in this room has. So if anyone's gonna ask the questions, let it be them and let us lift them up in prayer. So I wanna pray for them right now. I wanna pray for any of us who are hurting. I wanna pray for those watching online that may be hurting, but I wanna lift up the Walks family. Um, if you wanna write their names down, it's uh, Robert, Lisa, and Corbin. Robert, Lisa, and Corbin, that's their son. And Aiden passed. But I wanna lift up that family that God would do something amazing through this season. So join me in prayer, would you? God, we come before you right now with in the midst of confusion, in the midst of loss, in the midst of grieving, in the midst of pain, knowing that you are close to the brokenhearted and still we say, God, what are you doing? But Lord God, we learn to trust in these seasons. So God, right now as a church, we lift up our lead pastors, we lift up Pastor Lisa, Pastor Robert, we lift up Corbin. God, we ask right now that you would be the lifter of their heads, that when they cry out, they would know that you are a God who hears, a God who sees, and a God who responds. And for those of us that have memories uh, with, with the family, memories with Aiden, God, that you would be the God who, who truly shows up when we're crying and we're in the midst of our tears, and you say, I am here, you can surrender, I have it under control. God, we surrender to you. We ask right now that as all of our campuses at this moment are praying right now for this family, God, God, we ask that you would completely cover their home, cover their house, cover the driveway all the way to the backyard, that you would transform their lives because of a moment of pain turning into a moment of praise. God, only you can do it. And in the midst of pain, you show up. So God, we ask that you would remind them there's an entire congregation praying for them, walking with them, crying with them, mourning with them, and praying for them. God, let this moment not be passed or missed by any of us. We look to you, we all surrender. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, the family's watching online right now. Uh, we did this last service, I wanna make sure we do it as well. Um, on the count of three, I just want us to shout, we love you. Because that's what they need to hear. That we love them, that we're with them, that we're praying for them and praying with them. If you know what that loss feels like, a word of love can last you for another few more minutes. Let's give them some encouragement this morning. So to the Walks family, on the count of three, one, two, three. We love you. We're praying with you. We're walking with you. Uh, these moments are, are never easy. Uh, it always seems difficult when you're walking up to a moment of deep pain and you're saying, God, what can I do? And he answers with one word, surrender. Uh, my wife and I uh, recently, or a few months ago, were in, um, went to go see Cirque du Soleil, I don't know if you've ever seen that, Cirque du Soleil, it's insane. It's in, I didn't know where to look, my eyes were, were looking at something over here, but there was stuff happening over there, and I kept asking my wife if they knew we only had two eyes. I couldn't, I can't do this. So I'm trying to figure out where to go, where to look, I'm trying to wonder, and then I see these trapeze artists, and my eyes were just drawn to the fact that they're holding this little bar, they let go of the bar, and they hope they get caught. Talk about surrender. So if you know me, I love books. So I went down a rabbit, rabbit hole and I started uh, reading all about trapeze artists and uh, it, it, was, it was wild, it did. Uh, Barnum and Bailey and uh, Cirque du Soleil and where it came from, all of this. And I came across this book 
that talked about this author and theologian named Henry Nouwen, I realized I'm not the first person to think about that model being a model of surrender. Henry Nouwen was this, as I said, a great author and, and theologian. He retired. At the age of retirement, he went out to go learn to be a trapeze artist. Can you imagine at the age of retirement? I'm thinking about that right now. No, I'd break something. Everything would be broken. He went out to go learn from them, and he said it was a model of surrender. But the most difficult part for him was letting go of the bar, being completely still, surrendering control to the person that was going to catch him. I said, that's a model of surrender. Some of that's for us, too, when we just need to let go of what we're holding on to, be completely still and know that God is good, and surrender all control, and see what he wants to do in our lives. That's what we're going to talk about today as we look at this book, beautiful letter in Luke. We've been looking at all of these moments when Jesus is meeting with people and food and Jesus are present and transformation is happening. We're in Luke chapter 7. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. It's right before the book of John. And, and Luke really shares this beautiful story about another moment at a table. Last week we talked about how Jesus called Levi and he said, follow me to Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. And Levi left everything and then, then followed him. I feel like before we go any further, Jesus may be asking you, I felt this as I was preparing. Jesus said, Marcus, who are you following? And what are you following? I mean, with desperation where it didn't matter who else was there, I'm just gonna follow that direction. I'm gonna run after that. What is it for you and what is it for me? As we go into this story in the book of Luke, chapter seven, notice someone who's willing to go after God with everything, complete surrender. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We talked last week, uh, the Pharisees are from this uh, ancient Jewish sect where they really studied the law and they wanted everything to be done in a certain way. They expected the Messiah to come, but he had to look a certain way. And Jesus came in and literally said, the kingdom is upside down. Everything you think it should be, it's all transformed. It's, it's when people that are low are made high. It, it's when the people that are proud are brought low. It's, it's completely turned around. And the Pharisee says, well, I need to see this Jesus guy. We'll see this old prophet thing he's talking about. I'll have him come over to my house and I'll judge for myself. So he does. So Jesus comes over, reclines at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, this woman living this sinful life probably heard Jesus speak a few times, maybe heard something that he had said. Uh, obviously had some transformative moment within our heart, and she had to go over to the Pharisee's house. But you have to think about what she is experiencing. This sinful woman, as scripture calls her, walked into the house of the Pharisee. So this sinful woman who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, alabaster, if you don't know what it looks like, it's this beautiful stone right here. This is alabaster from Egypt. Uh, when we were over there, we were in uh, this, this temple called Temple Caffrey, and it's where they believe Joseph's bones were actually found. They found bones, they believe it was Joseph's. But the, all of the floor was all alabaster. Alabaster was a really prized gem. And she walks in with this beautiful looking outside filled with this perfume it's a very expensive perfume called, called nard, and it was pure nard, and she brings this to the feet of Jesus. And watch what happens next. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. One theologian 
calls those tears, when you have no words to say, he calls it heart water. I have nothing else to say at the feet of Jesus. All that falls out is heart water. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Okay, back in the day, you didn't wear boots. You wore sandals. And there was dirt everywhere, and there were animals everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So imagine what's in your toes, okay? He walks over to this meal. Everyone is reclining at the table. The feet are kind of behind you. Everyone is all around the table. Feet are just in the house. Feet are everywhere. This woman walks up and sees the dirty feet of Jesus, cries, wipes the tears with her hair, and pours the expensive perfume on his feet. That would cause a bit of a ruckus, right? If you were at your meal at your house and someone came in and was like, ah, you'd be like, what's happening in here? Well, that's what happened in this story. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice he said to himself, never say something to yourself that you don't want Jesus to know about, okay? <laughs> Jesus is gonna find out. He's gonna know immediately. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. And the kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. She's a sinner. The woman didn't care what she was being called at the time. All that she knew and all that she understood was that of all of the pain that she's walked through in her life, the Messiah, Savior of the world to be, saw her. Maybe that's all you need to know today is that Jesus sees you. Maybe you've been walking and living a life where, where you're, you feel completely unseen, when it feels like no one notices you. You walk into a room and, and you feel like you're just completely ignored, that you have the savior of the world looking at you beyond your failure, beyond your success, beyond your regretful mistakes and your radical moments, beyond your qualifications and your questions, beyond your comparison and your compromise, behind, behind and beyond everything, the eyes of Jesus are on you. It's a powerful moment in our lives when we have to realize that if Jesus is looking at us, what is my response? But we kind of don't want to look at Jesus. We don't want to look at the eyes of Jesus. It's kind of like in a life group when someone says, hey, would someone pray us out? And everyone looks down. Nope, not me. <laughs> and then you look up and the life group leader's like, you're praying. We do that with Jesus. We're like, no. And I think it's one of two reasons. One, because we're afraid of what he'll say. And we're afraid of what others are seeing. And this woman, it didn't matter to her, everyone else around. But let's be honest, if we were there, if we were in the position of the woman at this moment, we'd be wondering, how do other people see me in this moment? I know Jesus is right here, but what about everyone else? And why do we care so much about this? Well, think about your childhood. It felt really good to be liked, and it really felt terrible to be rejected. This is coming from someone who was picked last in every sport team. Always. It's like, hey, we're playing basketball at lunch. You want to play? Of course I do. You any good? No. I just love playing. All right, Marcus is going to be last. Who's picking first? Oh, cool. That was me. Right? And, and I know I'm not the only one. I heard an awe. I'm not the only one. A few of us got picked last. Okay? Not everybody could be picked first. It felt really good to be picked first. felt terrible to, pick, to be picked last. And we were all looking for this place to finally belong. But then you grow up. And you're still like, is everyone proud of me? You walk into your workplace and you're hoping that people are going to see you and Hey, you guys see me and I'm good, right? I worked really hard. Are, are you happy yet? Everything's okay, right? I didn't do anything wrong. And then you get the sickness. That happens to me. And you start apologizing for everything. So, oh, so sorry to bug, but could you? I'm so sorry. I should have held the door open for you. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got these pants and I didn't even get you a pair of pants. I'm so sorry. 
Oh, I'm so sorry, I, I got gas for my car. I should have traveled all the way to your house and got you gas for your car and traded cars. I'm so sorry. For what? We just, I just want them to be proud. I want them to be happy. All she cares about is what Jesus sees and what Jesus is going to say to her. And Simon is sitting back, and he's just waiting. He could have stopped it. If someone were to walk into this room right now with maybe an alabaster jar and a little bit of perfume, and they started walking up uh, to, the, to the platform, and it was like, I'm going to wash your feet. I hope someone in here would stop and be like, hey, no, uh-uh. We don't do that here. You're not going to run up on the platform and wash someone's feet. No, you were good. I hope someone would stop. But Simon's like, no, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to let her do it. She'll probably embarrass herself or embarrass Jesus. She's not going to embarrass me. She was hoping that Jesus would say, get this woman away from me. Don't let her touch me. But praise be to God that Jesus is touchable. And he says, go ahead, you can approach me. But what does he say? He sees her touching him, and he says, if this man were a prophet, that's called the second class condition when it comes to studying scripture. Second class condition is when you ask a question, but you know the answer, and you believe in your heart that it's a completely complete answer opposite of the action that you're wanting to happen. If this man were a prophet, which he's not, here's what would happen. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. Then look at the label, that she is a sinner. Just immediate. I, I feel like that woman, uh, she was a sinful woman. Scripture calls her a sinful woman. As you study scripture, you realize she was most likely a woman of the night or a prostitute. And so she would walk around and maybe be known. The alabaster jar of perfume maybe was a family heirloom or it was something that you often would wear around your neck to let the perfume kind of waft around the different people you're walking by. And so someone would smell something sweet and fragrant and they'd say, ooh. So she was a sinner. But I bet she walked into that room beyond all of the shame, beyond everything that everyone could say, and she was waiting for that moment. She's probably like, three, two, one. That woman's a sinner. She's like, there it is. How many of us have walked into rooms and you just be like, oh, here we go. Just wait for it. Three, two, ah, yeah, here we go. Yeah, okay, we're all gonna say it. I knew it. But he calls her a sinner, labels her a sinner, and there's only two types of people in the world when it comes to sinners, and all of us get to pick which one we are. We're either overt or covert. Over at sinner, I'm a sinner, sorry, just how it is. I'm working on it. I'm a saint who sometimes sins, or we're a covert sinner. I'm completely perfect. But let it get a little dark at night. Let you be alone. Close the door. You sin in private. Only a few people would know, but you would never let everybody know. It's the socially acceptable sins. This is what's happening with the Pharisee, Simon here. He, he dealt with socially acceptable sins. And you know what they are. I'll just lay them out for you. Pride, self-arrogance, no sensitivity of heart at all, a complete hardness of heart, judgmentalism. We're like, oh, that's okay. But sin in a way that I don't like, that's a sinner. You have this judgmental spirit that was okay, I guess. But it's still sin, still pulling us away from God. And so he calls it out. That woman is a sinner, and it places this label on her. And I wonder how many of us are walking around with labels. Because the truth is, if you are like me, you are someone who is different than other people. And people often label what they can't understand. And you've been given a label, and you carry it. How many of us are carrying labels that people have given us years and years ago? I know one of the labels that uh, people that I grew up with and teachers labeled me was stupid. You're always going to be stupid. And in the same breath, they would say, you should be getting straight A's. You're stupid. And I, ne I never made sense of it. And I still carry that to this day. I wanted to start my master's program 
my graduate program, and I was really excited to do it, but I, I waited a couple years because I was afraid that I would still deal with this sickness that meant I had to get straight A's to prove that I wasn't stupid to my third grade teacher and to family and to people around me that called me stupid. I have to get straight A's or else they're right, I am stupid. To a third grade teacher? I said, man, God, if I, if I go after this program and I, and I focus so much on my grades that I miss you, I don't want it because I still carried this label. Another label that was told to me when I was younger and I still carry it, it's, it's one word, but this word has crippled me for much of my life. Marcus, you're fat. And I know maybe you hear it and you're thinking, well, it's just a word. And that became an identity thing for me where I did everything I possibly could to not get that way. And I mean, to, to this day, I still work out every day of the week. Why? I love working out. I really do enjoy it. But there's this idea in me that Marcus, you are fat, which means uh, you're just not a good person. And that's not even the truth, but it's what I believe within myself because it was not said as, hey, it looks like your family really cares about you and you get well fed. No, it was told to me that you don't take care of yourself. So I carried this and carried it and carried it. And it it doesn't matter what my body will look like, no matter what, when I still look in the mirror, I still see someone who's fat. We think, well, Marcus, it's not, there's, there's not a word someone could tell me. The only thing I need to do is lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I know this is not what you say about me. Or another one, I've had people walk up to me and say, you're a terrible pastor and a bad leader. And I get up onto the platform, open up a Bible, and in the back of my mind I hear, you know you're not good at this. You know it shouldn't be you. And I carry these labels, and it's a heavy weight that I need to put at the feet of Jesus. But for some reason, it's become an identity that has become chains that I'm trying to let go of. And I wonder what this woman felt as if she were to hear someone call her a sinner, if she was like, you're right, and I'm still at the feet of Jesus, but I'm going to miss it because you're right, I am a sinner. That's what happens to those labels. We carry them, and we forget at the feet of Jesus, everything has changed. I shared some of mine. What labels are you and I still holding on to? Maybe it's a word that someone said from a previous relationship. Maybe it's a word that came from a mother or a father or a loved one. Maybe it's a a word that came from a teacher. Maybe it's a word that came from a boss. Whatever it may be, if you're still holding on to it, you can lay it at the feet of Jesus. I want to give you a tip that my therapist gave me. I was sharing about these ideas and, and everything that I was feeling. And he said, Marcus, you have the power to control who you give the power to. And I was like, whoa. And he said, you've been giving people power in your lives that don't deserve it. And it, like, it just shook me. So, okay, maybe you're right. And he said, I want to ask you a question. Those people that called you those things, did they love you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, would you talk that way about someone that you love? And I said, of course not. He goes, then I'll ask you again. Did those people love you? <sighs> so maybe you're walking around with a label that came from someone that wasn't from a place of love. The only label in the kingdom of God is child of God, the only one that matters. Yes, we may have a past. We may have made some mistakes. We may have made some mistakes this morning. You might make some mistakes tomorrow. You are a child of God. That is the only label that you get to have. All the other ones get to go away. That doesn't make carrying these labels any, any necessarily easier. You know, uh, sticks and stones and break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Whoever wrote that didn't have a bully. 
right? It hurts. But if I can bring it and put it at the feet of Jesus, I'm reminded the older and older that I get, I'm realizing that when I listen to the people that have given me these labels, they're starting to sound more and more like the enemy sounds because the enemy knows my name and calls me by my sin, but Jesus knows my sin and calls me by my name. And Jesus is more concerned about your present and your future than he is about your past mistakes. He is the one who knows you the most and loves you the most. It's insane that he looks at us and says, I know you've messed up before and I love you, child of God. I love you, child of God. I love you, child of God. But you don't know all my I do know all your mistakes and that's the best part. I love you, child of God. You're thinking, but I'm just so bad. I know you're naturally gifted at it. Me too. You've never had to teach your kids how to be bad. They just do it. You never sat, all right, Johnny, we're going to teach you how to lie. And here's, no, they just know. You walk up, knock on the door. Are you asleep in there? Yeah. <laughs> Is the TV off? Yeah. I can see the light through the, through the door. It's off. You just turned it off. No, it's been off. You don't have to teach them that. They're just naturally gifted at being bad. But Jesus is supernaturally gifted at being good and bringing good to us. So in the midst of our badness, he brings his goodness. He says, here's good. And he sees us. Jesus sees you. And to know that he sees us in a way that's so much better than any other way anyone else could see us should give us so much freedom in our lives. That he looks at us and he says, I want you to be a disciple who is surrendering everything at my feet. This is what is the beautiful image in this story that we could miss if we read it too quickly. When you were a disciple, when someone would walk up or you'd walk up to a rabbi and say, could I follow you? Or Jesus were to say, would you follow me? They would literally sit at the feet of Jesus to learn and to gain everything they could to become more and more like him. This woman in the entire room is the only one at his feet because she says, I'm surrendering as a disciple. I want to learn. He says, I see you. Would you simply come to my feet and learn? Are we willing to learn at the feet of Jesus and watch what he can teach us? Because Jesus actually has something else he shares in the story of verse 40. Watch what happens. He says, Jesus answered him. Answered who? Simon, the one who was thinking in his head. Can you imagine if you're in a room, you're just having the inner monologue and your family's around, you're like, I can't believe, blah, blah, blah. And they look at you. Uncle, Uncle John looks at you and he goes, you're talking about me in your head. What would you do? That's what happens. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I bet you Simon was so excited to hear what he was about to say. Oh, Jesus, I know. Thank God that I'm like me and not like her, right? Oh, I know. I already know what you're going to say. Yeah, keep on going. That word, that phrase, I have something to tell you, uh, even in, even in uh, Koine Greek, and just like in our world today, it actually is saying, I have something to tell you that you may not like. It's a bit of a correction. Just imagine you hear from your friend or your spouse, I have something to tell you. You're like, uh-oh, where are we going? That's what happens in the room, but he totally misses it because his pride is completely blinding him. So he says, tell me, teacher. <laughs> Jesus goes, okay, hold on. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarius is the singular... And a denarius is about one day's of wage. So 500 days of wage versus 50 days of wage. Someone owed that. 
And it's not by coincidence that Jesus chooses 500. Uh, most likely the alabaster jar and the ointment, the perfume that was inside of it, that was broken. When it came to alabaster jars, you broke them and they were done. Once they were broken at the feet, once they were broken to be used, they were completely done and everything was wasted or poured out. It probably cost 300 to 500 denarii. A year's wage. This is why later when you read another, another story similar to this, Judas stands up and says, we could have sold that for 300 denarii. And Jesus is wrapping everything together. And he says, neither of them had the money to pay him. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? This word love him more is not like necessarily just like an effectual kind of love. This is like feel so much more grateful for it. If someone said, hey, I'm willing to pay off either your credit card debt or your house. How much are you in credit cards? Like, oh, 3,000. And what about your house? 5,875. Oh, okay, that's 587,000, whatever, how much it's going to be. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, I'll pay off your house. You'd be jumping for joy. Be like, no more mortgage, let's go. You'd have to figure out how to make sure it's not income and have to pay it on your taxes, but you know the whole thing. Um, but you'd be jumping up and down. But if someone was like, out of the two, we'll just do the credit card. You'd be like, thanks, I mean, why'd you ask for the other one, though? But neither of them had the money to pay. Which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says this, you have judged correctly. You didn't judge her correctly. You judged this parable correctly. And this is the difficult part. Jesus is saying, you get it when you're in a classroom setting, but you don't get the application. You come into a room like this and we gather and we worship and we praise and we hear from the word of God and we're like, I got it, I know that answer. And we walk out into the world and then Jesus says, where's the application? You missed it. You judged the word correctly, but you judged her incorrectly. You didn't put it into practice. Verse 44, then he turned toward the woman and said, do you see this woman? Jesus asking that question. He knows our most inner thoughts, our deepest beliefs, our deepest feelings, our deepest questions, and, and he knows the questions he needs to ask us. In fact, if you look at the gospels, Jesus asked over 300 questions. I wonder what question he's asking you and me today. He says, do you see this woman? He said, I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet. Again, they wore sandals and so their feet are all dirty. When you come into someone's house, this is just customary. You come into someone's house, there was a little basin, you poured the water on it, got their feet clean and they came into your house for a meal. This is customary, anyone coming to anyone's house. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. This is like a close friend coming over. This is like a really good friend. Be like for us, you'd be like, hey, how you doing? You give them a hug, or maybe the kiss on one cheek to cheek. Mwah, mwah. I know people today, when you go into their house, it's still what they do. It's like a closer friend. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Then there's the honored guest that walks in. You didn't put oil on my head. That's what you did with honored guest. See, in ancient times, life was lived publicly, not privately. It was lived in public squares, not behind walls like we do today. And when an honored guest would walk in, you would honor the guest, you'd wash the feet, you'd kiss them, you'd pour oil on their head. It was this type of blessing and for safety and for peace as they would sit down and begin to teach at this meal as everyone would start to gather around and stay kind of on the edges of the outside. People that necessarily weren't invited, but everyone can kind of get in and see. And so everyone's hearing what Jesus is saying. He's an honored guest, but Simon did not honor him because Simon just wanted to judge Jesus. This woman has not entered, not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. He's telling, he's telling Simon, 
Jesus is saying, you know, you're, you're missing the whole thing. I just told you this parable and you're trying to figure out if she's, she's worse than you or you're better than her. You're missing the whole idea. The whole idea is that neither of them could have paid the debt. So with that in mind, do you see this woman? Do you see that you have a debt, Simon, and she has a debt, Simon, and neither of you could pay it, and I'm the only one who will go to the cross and surrender everything and pay the debt that you couldn't pay. So now, do you see this woman? Not do you see her sin, but do you see her worship? Do you see her as I see her? Of course, Simon saw her, but he didn't see the same woman in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus said, I see her as repentant. And, and filled with worship and now being completely transformed. I see her as a woman that was filled with gratitude, that led to humility, that led to this boldness, and now she's at my feet. That's what I see. But what you see is a woman to judge. I see a woman in need. And you see someone to judge. I wonder how many of us have looked more like Simon in our lives than we have looked like Jesus in moments like this. If those are the two characters in the story, Simon and Jesus, we'll get to the, to the sinful woman in a moment. Who are we more like? It's, it's so sad when I hear stories about people coming into a church and they think, well, you know, I've, I've walked in there, but I immediately get judged because I look a certain way, I dress a certain way, and I wore the best outfit that I have and I still got made fun of. Or, or I talk about what I'm dealing with and my struggles and they, and they laugh at me or they kick me out because I'm too dirty or I'm too sinful and I'm too wrong and so I can't be around. I don't want that kind of church, I don't want that kind of God, I don't want that kind of Jesus, so they walk away. Can I tell you the stories I love to hear? I don't know what it is, but I walked into that church, Newbreak, and I don't know anything about Jesus yet, but I feel like those people really wanna be like him. I walked in and it was like, it was like my family. And this line right here. And I felt like home. See, so many people have experienced a Simon in their lives, but very few people have experienced Jesus in their lives. But we get the Simon sickness where we're like, I'm just, I'm a little better. Or we can have the love of Jesus. Love of Jesus is unconditional and it's radical. The sickness of Simon, it's critical and judgmental. So how do we figure out where we are in this story? Well, I think there's some symptoms of Simon sickness that I wanted to kind of lay out for us because we need to kind of evaluate if we have it within us. First, first one, you have Simon sickness. We become more concerned with the sins of other people than we do of the sins of our own. I'll say it another way. We are more frustrated and disgusted with the sin in the news than the sin in the mirror. I can't believe what they're doing. And you walk into the mirror, you're like, you're looking good today. And Jesus said, neither of you could pay the debt. Brene Brown, great author and speaker, would say that all of us are one step away from being the others, in quotes. The people that we don't like, the ones that we don't even want to pity. Many of us are one step away one paycheck away, one addiction away, one mental health challenge away, one divorce away, one decision, one bad night, one bad decision, whatever it may be, you're one away from becoming those people, the people that you don't like, the people that you don't want around you, the people you don't let your kids play with, the people you don't want living next door. You're one step away. Whew. If that's the case, I need to make sure that my heart is right with God first. That's where I need to focus. That's the first symptom that we can have. Second one is our worship becomes casual. We come in, I just want to speak the name of, I really don't like that song. Where are we going for lunch? What are we doing for, 
You want it to your Santa Mexican? Okay, we can do that. They have a table at three. Hey Siri, can we do a table for? Turn the music down. I speak his name a little quieter. Siri, I would like to set an. It's only Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe, that we're worshiping. I'll be super honest with you. I couldn't care less about style when it comes to worship. All I care about is the subject when it comes to worship. If the subject is not Jesus, I don't want it. But if the subject is Jesus and everything that he stands for and got the power of God in our lives and the Holy Spirit moving through us, I will sing at the top of my lungs. doesn't matter what it's about. But so many of us get distracted, whether it's a style, whether it's a song, or I don't like, I don't know why they sang that one. We're distracted. The reason that you see my wife and I up in the front uh, worshiping or listening to the sermons, uh, we sit in the front because if I'm standing in the back, I want to give you about 10 seconds of what goes through my mind. I'll stand in the back. Oh, I wonder why those lights aren't on. We should probably turn those lights up. The curtain's open. I want to make sure that no one is able to look back there because that's a, that's a hazard. Oh, I wonder why the podium isn't up there. Oh, wow, the glass on the drum screen is pretty dirty. We should make sure we clean that. Did anyone vacuum the, the, the carpet on the platform today? Make sure no one trips over the cable. I wonder what the next song is going to be. Why do we move the keyboard like this? Why can't it be straight? I wonder if, okay, are they, did they mean to match like that? Maybe they didn't mean to match. Oh, the, the, the chairs aren't fully aligned right. We should have, I need to text them to make sure that we get the chairs aligned right. And I notice a trash can, that happens to me. Or I stand at the front and say, someone else had to figure it out. <laughs> I just want to speak the name of Jesus. How many of us have become so distracted during our worship that our worship has become casual? My prayer is that we would bring a premeditated gift to the place of worship instead of a premeditated judgment like Simon brought. It's the second thing in sym- symptom of Simon's sickness. Third is we're slow to repent. I've heard it said that the, what we do after the time that we sin tells us everything we need to know about our understanding of the gospel. Some of us, we, we mess up and we run away from God. We're like, he needs to cool off. Can't talk to him right now because he's, he's angry. We run away from him as if he needs to cool off. And you feel that thing within you. And you're like, man, I should pray. And you're like, well, I can't right now because I messed up. And God goes, no, I know. Be at my feet. I said it before, it's this idea that I messed up, don't tell my dad about it, or I messed up, I can't wait to call my dad. We run away from God in shame or we run towards him in repentance and say, God, I've messed up and you're the only one who can fix it. It's a debt that I couldn't pay, but you paid it all, so I'm coming back to you. Lastly, Simon Sickness, we're not loving as Christ did. If all of our time loving Jesus, reading his word, being in every single life group that you could ever imagine, doing all of the serving trips, you're leading people, you're walking with people, you're sharing things with people, if in all of that you are not loving people as Christ did, something is off. All of us have to guard ourselves from that. And some of the best news for all of us, we're not in the fix-it business. We're not there to fix it. We're there to love people toward Jesus. Well, what they need to do, no. God, what do I need to do in this situation? The question is not, God, how could you love them? He loves them. The question is, God, how can I love them? And that's the way Jesus speaks. He just speaks in love. So when it comes to what Jesus is gonna say, he is going to say the most loving, powerful thing that you need to hear. When it comes to any label, any, any darkness, any past that you're walking through, we must get confidently to the point to where we say, there is not one drop of my self-worth that is dependent on your acceptance. Only Jesus is. You walk into a room and someone say, we don't like you. And you say, in your head. <laughs> Maybe not out loud, okay? There's not one drop of my self-worth that's dependent on you. If you know them, maybe get there. 
all about what he says. God's love for me. Luke 47, or sorry, Luke 7, verse 47, he continues. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Jesus doesn't act like sin doesn't exist. He goes, I know she's messed up. You're right. Hey, Simon, you're right about one thing, that she is a sinner. You forgot that you also are one as well, and everyone else in this room. I am the only one who is not, is what Jesus is saying. He said, so her sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus looks at her, and imagine those eyes straight directly at her. Your sins are forgiven still crying, still wiping his feet, still pouring out whatever's left of the perfume. What I love about this perfume, this, this nard, as it's called, it, it's so strong that it permeates every area of the room. So people are probably like, that is way too strong. And Jesus is like, yeah, it is. You're right. And she's still pouring it out. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this woman, who, who is this man that even forgives sins? <laughs> Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. This woman brought two things to the table. The oil, the perfume. She brings that and she brings a repentant heart. She brings a repentant heart and worship-filled offering and she receives three things. Notice what Jesus says. He says, your sins are forgiven. Notice this order. We can't mess this order up. Forgiveness is the economy of the kingdom. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is called a, a, stative, a stative verb. Uh, it's perfect tense. It means that it's happening now and it will continue happening. That your entire identity has changed. You are now forgiven. Identity changes first and then your activity changes. You're forgiven and saved. Now you will get to go in peace. We like to tell people, start living like we believe. And Jesus says, they don't even know me yet. Show them who I am. Completely changed, forgiven, saved, go in peace. That word saved, uh, the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. What's Jesus' name? Yeshua. So when they ask, who is this man that has the power to forgive sins and offer salvation? Jesus goes, you don't know my name, do you? My very name means salvation. And some of us need that healing. We need to be forgiven. We need to be saved and experience salvation. And we need to experience this peace when everything is right as the way it should be. So many of us are not ready to be healed because we're not ready to expose what needs healing. We are only healed as far as we are real. We have to get real with God and go to his feet and say, I don't have much to bring. I bring this alabaster. I bring my brokenness. I bring my pain. But it's a heart that's ready to receive what you have for me. And you walk up to him knowing that at the feet of Jesus, every wrong is made right. That's the idea of surrender. I talked about the trapeze. It's actually just the bar between the two ropes that the trapeze artist would hang on. That word trapeze comes from an ancient Greek word called, named uh, trapeza. Trapeza means table. And it was at a trapeza that Jesus sits down with his closest friends and says, for you to have life, I'm going to let go of my life. And for you to have life, you have to let go of yours and be ready for me to catch you. So maybe we can model after this woman in this story who walks up to Jesus at the table and says, I let go of everything. I only have one thing to say to you and one way to worship. It's offering everything. And we fall down, we lay our crowns 
at the feet. Would you stand as we would in the presence of God? Jesus, the greatness of his mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We cry, we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Would you lift your hands again as a sign of surrender, complete surrender? We fall down. And we fall down. We lay our crowns. At the feet of Jesus, the greatness of, the greatness of His mercy and love. At the feet of Jesus, oh, we cry holy, and we cry holy, 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 and we cry holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Sing it one more time. We cry, holy. So we lift it up to Him. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we Cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb.